Hey guys, it's L.O. and welcome back to the Aviation Lowdown. This is episode 7. First and foremost, I just wanted to thank all the guests that have made this podcast what it is so far. You guys have been absolutely incredible. So many positive responses from people listening, people emailing me, calling in even. It's like, I don't know how they got my number, but that's a different story. But a whole bunch of people just really, really keeping the camaraderie high and keeping that passion going, as I described from episode one. So thank you so much, and especially thank you to all the fans. Over 15,000 downloads so far in just over like six weeks, so that's really cool. That's really cool. So one of the things I wanted to do is to not only get some interesting people on Aviation Lowdown, but also just sort of describe maybe some of the uh, industry-wide discussions and topics that a number of people maybe are familiar with, or maybe not. That's even better. You know, a lot of times if you talk to people who have a different view or perhaps are more educated or less educated in certain areas, you are able to sort of cultivate this really cool creative uh, goo, you know? And so that's what I try to do. We try to encompass everything here. Today on episode seven, we'll be talking, well, I guess I'll be sort of just talking to you guys, my fans, and I want you to really, really reach out to me and tell me what you think. I mean, this is a really interesting topic, and you got to tell me what your opinion is. That's lo at aviationlowdown.com is my fan mail. You can send me hate mail, opinions, questions, comments. Uh, we also take uh, donations. That's you know highly recommended. No, I'm kidding. But the point is, anything you want to share with me regarding aviation or this episode to come, let me know because I really want to get more of the fans listening involved. So without further ado, here it is, the Aviation Lowdown Episode 7. So as many of you guys probably know, I'm a partner in the satirical aviation page, ATC Memes. And it's funny, you go to a party or something and you meet somebody and they're like, hey man, what do you do? And in the Western way of life, especially in the US, what do you do usually corresponds to your job. Well, my day job is not ATC Memes, okay? But I always sort of include the fact that, hey, I run a satirical webpage for the aviation industry. And they're like, what the heck does that mean? And then you start explaining, you know, we've cultivated discussion in community and video and audio and apparel and gifts. And they're like, oh, well, that gets a little more interest because as soon as you start getting the business aspect into it, people are far more interested from my experience. But one of the really best parts of running ATC Memes has been the community. Meeting people, getting out there, going to sun and fun fly-ins, air shows, and just really having a ball meeting people face-to-face and, of course, also through the media, social media. So in the latter situation, typically what I can do is obviously post, but I also try to go live, which is live video broadcast where I'm talking face-to-face to you guys. You know, my face pops up on your phone. Usually that highly disturbs people. No, I'm kidding. It's not like the Momo Challenge, by the way. That's pretty terrifying. I just read an article on that, but uh, I digress. So not like that. But the point is, a lot of people tune into these live broadcasts, and we have the weirdest discussions from, you know, what's the best airplane, Airbus versus Boeing? What's the best flight school? Do you deviate? What's like chop? This and that. How do I fly an NDB? Anyway, one of the coolest and probably most interactive discussions that we've had in a very, very long time involves ADSB and specifically GPS technology. And that's what I plan to talk to you guys a little bit about today. Some of the ideas that were thrown around in that uh, probably 45-minute live broadcast were absolutely mind-bending. And it's the type of stuff that I really just love to vibe with. And I think the listeners will really appreciate some of the interesting aspects of these technologies they don't normally think about. 
I graduated from Purdue University in 2010, and I remember back then some of the professors were like, hey guys, you better pay attention to this thing called ADSB, because man, it's going to change your damn life. We're like, I don't know what you're talking about, but actually, no, a lot of people were really curious about this new technology, and the federal government, the FAA, did something totally unprecedented. Well, I wouldn't say it's totally unprecedented, but they did something rare for the federal government, uh, unless it involves taxes, okay? That's, they set a deadline. January 1st, 2020 is the day that nearly all aircraft flying in controlled airspace in the U.S. have to be ADSB equipped. So, for those of you listening who don't know about this stuff, you're probably like, yo, Dave, what the fuck are you talking about? But I'm going to break down a little bit of the the basics and sort of the history behind this stuff and what it means and how it will affect flying here in the years to come. So, back in the early days of aviation, it was pretty much a free-for-all. You know, you have your biplane or whatnot in your backyard, fill it up with some fuel, hand-prop the thing, take off on your 12-million-acre farm, do some barnstorming of the neighborhood, try to impress the neighbor's daughter with some loop-de-loops, maybe crop dust a little bit on your farm, come back and land, have dinner with your beautiful wife and 25 kids, and it's happily ever after. And that was pretty much the case for years. But the federal government noticed that there was a lot of money to be made in aviation. And if the public was to be afraid, that is, scared by so many of the accidents that they were seeing because people were being crazy, they had to get involved and regulate it. And that's sort of what happened. When World War I broke out in 1914, Congress decided to take some steps to grow the U.S. economy because big economies meant that there was more innovation, there was more strength, and in general, it's just safer when there's a gigantic war breaking out across the ocean. So one of the things that the government did was they started experimenting in things that were novelty and sort of new, of course, aviation being one of the biggest. And with the help of the U.S. Army, the post office, actually, I think in 1918, they started the first airmail route. This is the first time we actually see planes being used for something that was besides just fun. They were being used for commerce. Even after World War I, where the Allies used the airplane extensively to help them on the front, a number of people in the U.S. were still very skeptical about controlled flight, and this was no thanks to people like the Barnstormers, who, this one statistic here, in 1924, 66% of all aviation fatalities were caused by barnstorming crashes, so people doing stunts and, you know, losing control of their plane. In 1926... The Department of Commerce finally created the Aeronautics Branch, and this was sort of going to be the organization to oversee the regulation and address things like safety, but also air navigation. So they used light signals, basically lighthouses along the route, people holding lights too. And then in 1928, finally, low-frequency radio range, which is sort of like NDB, and it's just a way of people to control where they're going. And this was the beginning of what is the modern-day air traffic control system, especially once they included airway communications by putting radios in planes. Well, while all this is going on, a bunch of engineers, scientists, and others who are far smarter than I could ever dream of being were trying to figure out ways how they could track weather, and specifically storm systems, they figured out fairly early on that lightning throws out a ton of RF, and you don't need to be a scientist to know this. You turn to an AM radio station during a lightning storm, holy shit, right? You can hear every little bolt of lightning. Well, they use this, uh, I guess, sort of paradigm to come up with their own technology to help them track storm systems, but the whole next decade, 1930s, they were perfecting all this stuff. But then World War II broke out, and they realized that the same high-frequency direction finding, or huff-duff as it became known, was able to track U-boats because the U-boats were transmitting on a certain frequency. If they knew that frequency, they could pinpoint using the same technology they had pinpointed the storm systems with. Now, 
this is sort of like the first time you see what would become radar used to track a target. That is enemy U-boats. The German wolf packs are out there and they knew where they were because of a technology that was basically designed to track storm systems. Now that's fucking cool, all right? But this is where it gets even more interesting. For those of you out there who appreciate your World War II history, you probably are familiar with the Battle of Britain, certainly one of the most important battles in the entire war. The RAF, Royal Air Force, against the German Luftwaffe, and uh, honestly, they were at a profound disadvantage against the Germans in almost every way possible. But one of the things that they did have was the doubting system, which is considered to be a key to their success. And yeah, it was basically the first radar system. So those technologies put together with Huffduff was reimagined as sort of this aerial defense network, the ground control interception network, and really all the airspace around the UK and Scotland, stuff like that, the channel specifically, it was being monitored 24-7 by radar operators. And this is the first time we really see the airspace being monitored for targets. The British radar system was undoubtedly one of the best things they had going for the island during World War II, monitoring the Luftwaffe and the channel, getting a feel for how many planes there were and where they were going to be going, but it had its fair share of problems. First of all, the Germans knew rather quickly they were being watched on radar, and once they understood this, they can sort of psychologically turn it around and actually use it to their own advantage. And the prime example of this is I remember reading an article where somebody was uh, mentioning crazy stories of how the formations and the squadrons would actually bluff certain targets. So they'd all head towards, say, London, for example, and all the British would be like, oh my god, they're going towards London, and scramble all the planes, and then at the last second, maybe 15 miles out or whatever, all the Germans would split left and right and attack different targets. London was untouched. So in that case, the radar system was actually a liability. It became dangerous to assume that the radar was actually going to help them. And there was other problems too, perhaps most notably the fact that Goring, he could occasionally get the Luftwaffe planes to actually sneak into formations of friendlies coming back to the island after a bombing raid or whatnot. So you'd actually have an enemy in your own formation? The radar knew nothing of that. All it could tell you is there's a blip. So this became sort of a problem. And eventually it led to what's called navigation friend or foe. And for those of you out there who know what a transponder is, that's sort of the birth of the modern day transponder. You could imagine being a radar operator back in the day in World War II. You're looking at this British airspace and you see friendlies and enemies and dust and birds and all sorts of distortion. You're trying to make a sense of this huge smear of color on your screen. Well, the transponder was like a cheat code because you could just tell your pilots to squawk your parrot, which is literally what they said, or perhaps it was like, squawk your parrot. It's a pretty bad British accent, but you get the point. And then once the blip was uh, differentiated in some way, the radar operator would say, strangle your parrot, which is, again, literally what they said, and you were positively identified on radar as being the plane in question or the group of planes in question. And to this day, we, of course, still use the term squawk. So fast forward a few decades and you'll find that the air traffic control system is using technology that's essentially no different than that technology found over the English Channel so many years ago during World War II. There's been some slight changes, like for example, now altitude is encoded so the controllers know how high you are versus the ground and other aircraft, but you know, it's generally the same idea. You send a ping out, it comes back, and now we know where you are. But ADSB, like I mentioned in the beginning, that's going to change all that. It doesn't use radar at all. ADSB uses something you might have heard of called GPS. Before we dive into the exciting world of ADSB and GPS, I think it's sort of important to note 
That radar is generally line of sight. So in other words, after the horizon, it really doesn't work very well. Uh, that is to say, you can put a radar dish on a cliff overlooking the English Channel. It works pretty well because you can see pretty far. But when it comes to things like intercontinental ballistic missile systems that are being launched from the other side of the globe, pretty much useless. Doesn't work at all. And so during the Cold War, developers and the engineers came together. They had to develop what is called an over-the-horizon radar system. Not surprisingly, it's a radar that, well, sees over the horizon. So you can see a large chunk of the globe. Kind of a wild story back in the late 70s. All of a sudden, a bunch of ham radio guys and oceanic HF operators noticed that there was a very distinctive tapping sound that somehow bled into almost every piece of electronic they dealt with. And it started messing up the phone system, the television transmitters. It just was like really, really pervasive. It became known as the Russian woodpecker. Of course, it was an over-the-horizon radar. Later, we would learn it was the Duga-3, which is a radar system that's based in present-day Ukraine. But it's funny to think that that thing was absolutely just mind-bogglingly powerful, and it got to the point where designers of electronics were actually putting woodpecker blankers in their circuitry. I'm not even making this up. Look it up. But you can actually hear, to this day, recordings of that thing online, and it's just the creepiest thing. In fact, a lot of people thought that it was a mind-control experiment. I'm not sure how many of you guys have ever played, uh, was it Red Alert 2? There's a character, Yuri, in Red Alert 2, Command and Conquer. He used mind control that sounded eerily similar to that uh, baud right there, so maybe they were onto something. Now, the point is, though, by the time satellite became a thing, and at least a reliable thing, over-the-horizon radar systems were pretty outdated because they're hugely expensive, they're difficult, they're sort of messy, and of course, they, well, interfere with everything. Well, fast forward just a few years, 1983, there was a Korean Airlines 747 departed out of Anchorage on the way to Seoul, South Korea, deviated from its flight plan into Soviet-prohibited airspace, and was subsequently shot down by the Soviets. And this was all because he was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. President Ronald Reagan was so angered by this, he actually signed a document stating that GPS signals that were previously military were now available to all civilians across the globe. And this was the beginning of GPS becoming available to everybody. So you might be asking yourself, what's the point of all this in general? We've talked about a bunch of guys getting together, developing a system for tracking lightning and U-boats in the English Channel. And we've talked about a flight crew getting lost over the Soviet Union, prompting a president to release GPS signals to the public. Seems a bit random. But, you know, the answer is the time-old tradition of combining things to make something better. And that's really what ADSB does. It's sort of the cultivation of all this over 100 years of evolution of surveillance and aviation technology coming together to make things better and make things safer. ADSB stands for Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, and that's quite the mouthful, but basically all it means is that, well, it's automatic in the sense that the pilot doesn't have to make manual position reports. So back in the day, you actually had to call up the radio. And even still, in non-radar environments, you have to call, sometimes an HF if you're oceanic, and make a position report, tell them where you are, fuel on board, that type of stuff, altitude, time. But it's also dependent, ADSB. That's a dependent surveillance, which means that the plane itself knows where it is. And that's, of course, through GPS. So you can kind of see what I mean. It's a combination of both. You're broadcasting your location, like the old school method of making a position report, but you're also using GPS, the new technology, to get a very accurate depiction of where you actually are. And this opens up a whole new world of exploration because pilots can also receive this data on their own ADSB 
and transmit it. So in theory, if everybody has this system going, you know where everyone else is. They know where you are. It's a happy system. And of course, going one step further, maybe the planes can actually avoid themselves. Ooh, that's kind of a scary thought. But the point is, you can see where this is sort of going. It's the idea that everyone's sort of transmitting to one another where they are, and it's accurate, and it's happy, and we're once again back on that farm back in the, uh, what is it, early 1900s with our biplane, except now we're doing it with a bunch of people with ADSB, satellite base, receivers, broadcasters. Damn, man, it's cool, right? If anyone has ever used an app like Find My Friends or Waze or some sort of app that broadcasts your exact location to a friend or family member or some stalker online, you've essentially experienced the exact same technology behind ADSB. You're taking a known position from your phone and you're broadcasting it to people who are interested. That could be controllers, other planes, or perhaps that person on Tinder that you would have perhaps not liked to have met. But the point is, it's the same paradigm. That's how it works. ADSB also offers a really cool advantage in one particular aspect, and that's where radar is previously unavailable. So you don't really need, I mean, there's no radar involved at all. So if you're in a mountainous area or you're flying all the way down to the surface, you can still be quote unquote seen on radar on the controller's screen, but it's not radar. It's ADSB data just being broadcast. One of the coolest things I heard was uh, about helicopters on the ocean. So they were either doing rescue missions or maybe working on oil platforms or out there at some air base uh, in the middle of nowhere with no radar. Well, you can actually see on ADSB these guys all the way down to the ground. The controller has a perfect eye view of where you are because the plane or the aircraft or helicopter or whatever always knows where it is. So that's one of the biggest advantages of ADSB. Sometimes planes would fly behind a mountain with radar and the radar waves can't see past the mountain, so the plane falls off the radar. <laughs> doesn't happen with ADSB because, again, doesn't use radar. So that's one of the biggest advantages. Really cool. So what I've just described in the past 15 minutes or so is sort of what most people in aviation would understand as being the brief history of radar and the brief history of how GPS was made public. And of course, it's always evolving. We use it every day. Everything from Waze to Tinder to navigating in your car generally is going to use some feature of GPS. And of course, there's a whole culture of people who kind of uh, belittle this fact. Uh, what is it? Children of the magenta line. That is to say, people can no longer navigate on VORs. They have to rely on GPS. And of course, you know, there might be some truth to that underneath the humor. But the point is, it's a major, major evolution in navigation. Nobody can deny that. But here's the thing. And I don't think many people talk about this, but GPS differs quite a bit from radar. And radar, even back in World War II, like I described, it was very, very nasty. There was a lot of returns on the radar that were unusable. You couldn't even tell who were friend, who was enemy. But it always returned something as long as the systems at play were functioning and they weren't destroyed. Like the tower was still standing, you were still getting your transmitters out there, whatever. Well, GPS, on the other hand, is a very complex system that can be well, very easily jammed or hacked. And this has actually been demonstrated numerous times and people can actually get GPS disruptors and just cause holy hell for hours. And I don't think it's often talked about. You know, we have a whole system that could rely on GPS and yet if the GPS system has a problem, what are people going to do? As I'm sure some of you know, I've been involved in audio production for like 20 years. I'm sort of obsessed with music and just trying to get good recording quality, although my cats in the background continually messing up this podcast is not really 
uh, paying much of a tribute to that. But the point is, there's always been this sort of dichotomy in recorded music between analog and digital. Digital being, of course, what you're listening to now, the CDs, the Spotify, the streaming, the stuff that you basically save on a flash drive, and analog being tape, being uh, vinyl, being wax cylinders, you know, whatever it is, something that's not digitally encoded. And the general idea is that digital holds on to the exact quality longer and exact quality is always maintained. It does not degrade. Uh, analog degrades. You look at a tape over time, it will slowly fade. Decades, decades go by. You still see it, but it's faded if it's a video or you still hear it, but there's more hiss. It's lost some of its shine. But here's the thing, and people don't, again, don't really talk about this too much, but if you scratch a CD, it's totally f***ing worthless. The thing won't play. If you scratch a vinyl record, you get maybe one little pop and the song continues to play. So digital tends to work or not work, and analog tends to constantly degrade. And it seems pretty random to mention this, but it's interesting to note that I think GPS and radar have somewhat of an eerily similar characteristic. GPS is super accurate and very reliable, but sometimes it just straight up won't work. And then what are you going to do? You can use a VOR. It's a little messier, not as accurate, but arguably speaking, in certain cases, it can be more reliable. You know, one of the things I always think is interesting to talk about is how no matter what you're doing, whether it's uh, audio production flying a plane, trying to start a business, you're trying to build a website. Like in 2019, there are so many incredible tools you can use to help make your life easier. But you sort of have to understand their limitations in order to get the best use out of them. You can't just rely on them as being the answer to everything. Uh, GPS, ADSB, the Magenta Line, like whatever kids want to call that, you cannot rely on that per se. And uh, these are technologies that are relatively new. I mean, I just read an article about how Boeing purchased Forflight. That's like f***ing incredible. It's amazing. And just, you know, 10, 15 years ago, this stuff didn't even exist. But if you rely too heavily on these things, instead of looking at them as just ways to help you, what happens is the tool begins to shape the user, and that's not a good place to be because all of a sudden when the tool doesn't work, you're totally screwed. So I think that it's really, really cool to sort of consider all the advancements in technology that have happened to aviation in the past few years, but we should not discredit the old school stuff like radar, like VORs, like, you know, these navigational systems have worked for decades for a reason. It's not because they're easy or because they're the most convenient, but it's because they work. There's an old quote I used to say, and I probably will butcher it, so bear with me, but I think it goes something like, there are two types of fools in this world, those who say, this is how we've always done it, so it must be right, and those who say, this is how we do it now, so it must be better. <laughs> Neither are usually right, by the way, but that's sort of the point. It's more or less a gray area. There was a crazy article I saved back in 2013, and it was a story about a bunch of engineering students built an $1,000 GPS spoofer, which they sort of built together in response to a dare, actually, from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They basically said, all right, guys, well, you think you're so smart. I bet you can't get this GPS signal spoofed. And a bunch of graduate kids basically said, oh, oh yeah, well, uh, check this out. And in plain English, because it's pretty complex, but they essentially spoofed the GPS signals to a yacht and were able to completely hijack the ship 
without ever touching the controls. This could of course be applied to any form of transportation, from ships to cars to aircraft, of course. And the GPS system relies on a lot of error checking, so the system is constantly looking and seeing what the error percentage is, or the latency, or whatever, and trying to correct itself. And the thing is, it's only as good as the information in which it's receiving from the system. Now, some people could say, well, there's redundancies built in. Maybe we have, for example, inertial navigation systems. Maybe we have uh, error checking via ground-based systems. Yeah, well, I mean, whatever. But here's the thing. Again, I don't think many people realize the fact that GPS is not entirely without its security flaws. And it's just, you know, I would love to learn more about what is being done to prevent that and what people are doing to sort of understand and mitigate attacks like that. Because, you know, if you have it as a uh, supplement, you know how to navigate via ground-based stuff or the air traffic controllers are using radar for active aircraft separation, then GPS becomes a tool and, you know, like all tools, it maybe can help you or maybe it's unnecessary at the time. But if you rely on that for the entire system, like, it could be an issue, could be a major issue. And again, I think it's a big discussion point. That's what that live broadcast on Instagram really, really got into. And I'd like to hear what you guys think. So LO at aviationlowdown.com if you have any thoughts on that. GPS. Is it safe? What do you think? Well, guys, hope you enjoyed episode seven of the Aviation Lowdown. That just about wraps it up for today. I just wanted to sort of give you a, a brief, very brief history of some of the technologies that aviators all over the world use. I thought it was fascinating, personally, reading about some of this stuff and just learning about it. And then also maybe getting your thinking caps on and getting you guys to share some of your opinions. You can do so LO at AviationLowdown.com, especially related to what I just talked about, ADSB and but tell me, have, have you upgraded your plane? Like, do you guys plan on doing this? Do you already have the stuff? Uh, as a controller, has it affected you at all? I mean, these are things that I'm just really fascinated about. So next week, we'll be back with some incredible interviews, some funny ones, too. I'll tell you that. And, of course, next month, it will be at down there at Lakeland, Florida. It's the sun and fun flying down there with our fans, Banyan Pilot Shop. That's right. It's the 3rd through the 7th. I'll be there 2nd through the 7th for the event. Man, you don't want to miss this one. So seriously, check it out. Banyan Pilot Shop, my great friends. Incredible shop, incredible FBO. Thanks, guys, for listening, and have a great week. Bye-bye.